So how about we start out by offering a shout out to the first ever girls basketball state champions. That is so impressive. Did you know the three of those girls are Chapel Hill kids? Sydney Langworthy, is, uh, she, she's about half the size of everyone else out in that court, but she is so tough, man. That little gal on point guard, she was in the mix of everything, stirring it up, stealing the ball. She was awesome. Um, Grace Neal, uh, Grace was given the assignment of holding down the center of that paint, and man, she was a monster under there. She was assigned to a six-foot-four center on the other team, and she vexed that woman so terribly. She was a monster under there. And, uh, and then Brenna Maxwell. Brenna... <laughs> Brenna scored 31 points yesterday. She scored a, uh, an all-time... Uh, record, state record of 81 points for the tournament, and, uh, and perhaps best of all, when she was interviewed afterwards, the first words out of her mouth were a tribute to her love for the Lord, and uh, I, we were really proud of her, so well done, all of you, great job. So, are any of our state champions here? No, Grace isn't here? I'm not surprised. Do you know how late that sucker was last night? They they won the game on Sunday morning, actually. It was after... How many of you were there last night? Ah, well done, you guys. Well done. Anyway, that is just something, something terrific to be celebrated. Well, sadly, for me, at least, you might be ready to move on, but for, for me, it's sad that we come today to the end of our little mini-series on Romans chapter 8. As I told you repeatedly, we, I just felt that we needed to pause and just stew in the juices of this magnificent chapter. And in the course of our time there, we've heard so many wonderful things from the Lord. Starting right out of the shoot in verse 1, we are discovered that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We continue on through our journey, and we, we discover that we have the privilege of calling God Abba, Daddy, because He has adopted us to be His kids. And we discover further that whatever it is we're going through in this life, Paul says, it is nothing compared to the glory that you are going to one day experience. Nothing. And, by the way, in in those moments when we are stricken, when you don't have a single word to say, you can't even offer up a prayer to God, he says, that's all right, because the Spirit is interceding on your behalf. The Holy Spirit of God is praying for us. And then last week, that magnificent promise, Romans 8, 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See what I mean? It's just almost an embarrassment of riches. It seems kind of wrong that one book would have so many goodies packed into it. I feel sorry for poor Leviticus. It's just kind of struggling along. No no one says, yeah, my life verse comes out of Leviticus. But but here, Romans, it's just amazing. Here's the thing. We We aren't done yet. Paul is about to close out this chapter with a a thunderous finale. And and if this doesn't get your heart racing, then you need a heart transplant. I don't know what to do for you. So would would you just listen as we read Romans 8, 31 through 39, and just exult with me in the power of this text. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. We ought to just pronounce a benediction and go, go home. Holy Spirit, would you take these powerful words and make them real in our soul, make them real in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) This passage just gets me. What then shall we say to these things, Paul asks. In other words, all these things that I've written in these last eight chapters, all that I've spent this eight chapters exploring about God's incredible grace towards his, his broken people. What is there left to say? How can I summarize all of this before I move on? And Paul does so in magnificent fashion with two powerful assertions. He says these two things. God is with us and God is for us. God is with us and God is for us. Let me start with God is with us. God is with us. Every Advent, we sing a carol that reminds us of that great truth, don't we? O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. Over the last couple of weeks, we've spent time talking about the difficult topic of of suffering. And I I told you in that time that, that God does not choose to explain himself as to why he allows suffering to continue in this world. But here's what God does, what no other God does, no other reputed God does. What he does is enter into that suffering. God the Son became a man, and he he experienced all that humanity had to offer, both the good and the bad. He drank deeply of the dregs of life, even to the point of dying on a cross. So for everyone in this life who, who suffers, who cries out in pain, Jesus says, I get it. I understand. I have been there too. And I am with you. We are together in this. And together we are going to make our way to glory. God with us. Emmanuel. 
And then in the closing verses of chapter 8, he takes a big red pen and draws an underline under the same promise. In verse 35, he asks this question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he offers some candidates. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall any of these separate us from the love of Christ? Amen to that. Actually, that, what you see there is a, is a litany of all that Paul himself experienced. Remember the reading from 2 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, where Paul describes all that he went through as a missionary for Jesus Christ. Here was a, a guy who was beaten and flogged and imprisoned and, and stoned and shipwrecked and betrayed and persecuted. He was cold. He was hungry. He was naked. He was snake bit. This verse is a summary of everything that Paul experienced. Everything except for one, the very last word. Did you know what, notice what it was? Sword. Sword does not mean warfare in this text. It means death. It means martyrdom. And of course, Paul proves to be a, a prophet as well because 11 years later, in the city of Rome, Paul would be hauled out of the Mamertine prison, the, the dungeon where I have been with others of you. He was hauled out of there, taken to his place of execution, and his head was taken by a sword. So you obviously see that, say that, see that Paul is not saying that we as followers of Jesus are never going to go through hard things. I mean, he's not making that claim at all. That's, what, that's the point he's making when he, when he quotes Psalm 44 that talks about us being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, listen, Christians are going to go through hard times. There will be some of you who will be persecuted. And you might say, well, I'm not really very persecuted. Well, talk to Andrew Brunson, our EPC pastor, who is still languishing in prison in Turkey as he's approaching the second year of his imprisonment. We may not, but there are thousands of Christians around the world who know exactly what Paul is talking about here, who suffer terribly. And Paul is saying that regardless of that, whatever your earthly trials trials might be, whatever you are going through, none of them can separate us from the love of God, from Emmanuel, God with us. But he's not done. He he goes on, he, he, he closes this passage with a promise that even the spiritual forces cannot separate us. What, what we just heard about really is about more about uh, physical things, the things of this earth that can, can strike us. But now he wraps it up by saying not only the things of this earth, but even spiritual forces cannot separate us from the love of God. This is the one that we are so familiar with. For I am sure, he starts. I memorized it when I was a kid. Is for I am convinced. I like that one better. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a magnificent promise? And Jesus here is, I mean, Paul here is talking about spiritual forces. The, the angelic forces, the, 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 the fallen angels, angels and rulers, principalities that it's called somewhere else, angels and, and rulers and, and powers, those are, those are demonic forces. And when he says height and depth, he's not talking about Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon. That, that, that was language that was used in the, 
in the art of astrology. It was used to describe the stars that were at the height and the lowest level of, against, uh, of, of their zenith, of their, of their arc. And so he's talking about all of these things, these supernatural spiritual forces that are even greater than that first list that he offered. And then he says, but even these, even death, even demons, even devils, anything else in all of creation, even all of these are unable to separate us from the love of God. Emmanuel, God is with us. My life group studied this passage Friday. What a great time together we had. And one of our members shared a really uh, poignant story. He tells us that when he was between the ages of about 5 to 13, that his father came and left his family six times. Sometimes he'd hang around for six months, sometimes for a year, but then he would be gone again. And my friend tells me about going to bed so happy that his dad was here and waking up the next morning to discover that he was gone yet again. And this runaway dad always left them destitute, He says that he can remember living in at least 30 different places. And one point, they were camped out in a state campground while his mom was looking for work somewhere. They were just playing around the fire together. You can understand how this experience of abandonment by his father again and again and again might make it difficult, as he said, for him to think about God as daddy, as Abba. He's growing into it, but he says, it's the hardest thing for me because I never knew what it was to have a father who stayed with me. I had a father who only left again and again. I suspect that this story would be repeated many times through this room this morning. Many of you, perhaps scores of you, understand what it means to be abandoned, to be separated from your earthly father. But Paul says, regarding our heavenly father, that will never Never, never, never happen. I'm convinced of it. Whatever you are experiencing, whatever you are going through, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Emmanuel, God with us. But that's not all. God is not just with us in the passive sense. Many of you had dads who might have been in the house They might have been there, but they weren't really there. They provided a home. They provided a a living. They put food on the table. They paid the bills, but they were emotionally distant. They were disinterested in your life. Some of you would have had that experience, but that's not our God. Paul says God is not only with us. He is what? For us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is our champion. God is our biggest fan. I was talking about these girls that are part of Chapel Hill who are now state champions. One of them is Brenna Maxwell. Her dad, Steve, is, my, is a friend. He's an elder of our church. He was the chair of our session uh, last year. And, uh, and we often get together for just to be together for fellowship. But when Steve is watching his daughter play basketball, he is not interested in fellowship. You, he sits and he warns you up front. He says, I just sit here by myself. I don't really want anyone around me. I don't want anyone asking me stupid questions or making, you know, small talk because he is focused like a laser on his daughter. That is all he cares about. 
He is paying attention to this girl for whom, of whom he's her great fan. I discovered this week when I went to the game on Friday night at the Simmies uh, that his, her, her mom is the same way. She has to sit separate from Steve. They don't like to sit together because she's busy talking to Brenna uh, all the way through the game, telling her what she ought to be doing from up there in the distance. This is, these are fans of their girl. This is what we got in God's affection for us. He asks it in the form of a question. If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? If, yeah, exactly right. Who cares? If, in other words, if we have got that kind of a fan on our side, that kind of a champion on our side, what possibly could we have to fear from whatever the world might throw at us? When I was doing youth ministry in Bakersfield, I had a kid in my group. His name was Don Genesee. You guys remember Don? He was six foot seven. He weighed 300 pounds. Don was really kind of a gentle giant, but it was not always so. He actually came out of a gang background, but he gave his life to Christ and it utterly transformed him. But he was still so big. And he was still so strong. I remember one time he walked up to, I think it was a a stop sign in a street that was set in concrete. And he just took it and (laughs) wiggled it until it got loose. I think, holy cow, that is impressive. When the kids used to play football, uh, they would give Don the ball. (laughs) He would just start running down the field. and He would just carry tacklers on his back. The counselors used to stand on the sidelines, and we see this massive humanity that just kind of moved down the field. We said, well, it must be Don under there somewhere. Don was the one you wanted on your team. And if Don was on your team, it didn't matter who your opponent might be. And that's what Paul is saying. If God is for us, who cares what is against us? Who can possibly stand? Imagine a God like that. It is actually inconceivable in most world religions. Because the other world religions, they don't view God in that way. They view God as aloof, disinterested, remote, far away. The idea of a God who is for us, who loves us, who is our greatest champion, that is uniquely Christian. John Stott said in his commentary that those four words, God is for us, is the most concise summary of the doctrine of Christian grace. God is for us. Paul says, what shall we say about all of these things? What shall we say about the reality of suffering in our lives? What shall we say when our world begins to collapse around us? What shall we say when our relationships begin to collapse around us? What shall we say when our our health is threatened and our marriage is threatened and our career is threatened and our kids are threatened? What shall we say to these things? Well, this is what he says. None of them. None of them. Not one of those things can ever separate us from the love of God. God is with us, but even more, God is for us. He is our champion. He is our admirer. He is rooting us on. Through his spirit, strengthening us for what lies ahead. That we might endure everything that the world and even the spiritual cosmic forces might throw at us. We will make it. We will get through it. We will survive. We will endure. Is that what he promises? No, actually, it's not. It's not. He doesn't just say that we're going to survive. 
He doesn't just say that we're going to endure. He doesn't just say that we're going to be hangers on. What does he say we're going to be? Conquerors. No, not just conquerors. More than conquerors. More than conquerors. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is such a great word. I'm going to dig into it and you're going to love it. It's hyper, it's hyper nicomen. Conqueror is there. means hyper nicomen. The word hyper, you, what do you think it means? Hyper, it means more than, way, way more than. But I'll bet you actually can translate the second half of that word, nicomen, nico. What, what word sounds familiar to you? Nico, nico. Here's your, here's your clue. Here's your clue. There it is. Do you remember what Nike was the goddess of? Victory. Nike is the goddess of victory. So in Christ, in the power of God's love, in the confidence of God's enduring presence, in the delight of his championship over us, Paul says, we are hyper-Nikes. We are hyper-victorious. We are way more than winners in the eyes of God in the eternal scheme of things. For those of us who have never won a single trophy except for participation trophies, this is saying something. In the greatest game of all, the game of life and the game of eternal life, he says, we are hyper-victorious. Exactly, hallelujah. It elicits hallelujahs from Presbyterians. It ought to. What does it mean to know a God like that? And to be known by a God like that? What does it mean to love a God like that? And be loved by a God like that? On Wednesday, a friend of mine contacted me and he said, would you be willing to meet with me and my friend? Because he has a lot of spiritual questions and I, I can't answer them. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know if I can answer them either, but I, I'll be happy to meet so we did. We gathered at a, a local restaurant, my favorite watering hole. And uh, this, he was a very impressive guy. Well-dressed, well-spoken, uh, confident, friendly. He was born in India. He is now an American citizen. He was raised in a Hindu family, but educated in a Jesuit school. Yeah, that's a combo. And, and he had lots of questions. For instance, the question, well, how do you reconcile your God uh, in, in the face of suffering and pain? <laughs> Does that sound familiar? We've spent the last two weeks. I should, you could come to church. You'll hear about it. How do you reconcile that? And he, and he went on. This is very personal for him. He has a brilliant son. I mean, we're off the charts brilliant. Nearly per, you know, perfect SAT test scores brilliant who has a, a degenerative muscle disease. So he is uh, a, like a young Stephen Hawking in every way. How do you reconcile this, he says. And then personally, here was a guy who was a high flyer in this big corporation. And uh, they asked him at one point to do something that was against his, that he felt was a violation of his integrity. And he wasn't willing to do it. And they let him go. They, they, they canned him. He had just gone through that. And the more I pressed him, the more I realized that this bravado, this apparent sense of confidence and, 
self-assurance had been severely shaken. He said, I, it, this isn't what I imagined for myself. I feel like I'm having to start all over. So I asked him, how are you coping? How are you coping through all this? And he thought for a moment, he says, well, I've always been a very optimistic person. I have great faith that things will turn out all right. And I said, you speak as if optimism and faith are the same thing. I'm not sure I think they are. So when you use the word faith, could you tell me what you mean by that? In whom do you have faith? In what do you believe? And he thought a moment and he said, well, I suppose in the cosmic forces. He said, I I think there's a, a rhythm to life that kind of makes sense. I suppose I would say that sometimes I will pray in front of a picture of one of our gods. Something like that. Now it was my turn. (laughs) I said, well, that underscores something that's really quite different between your faith and and mine. Because you see, I I believe that we have one God. The God in whom I believe is one God, one loving God, who holds my destiny in his hands. Not 330 million unknowable gods, one God. And this God has entered into the world of suffering. And he redeemed it. This powerful God is in total control of everything that is going on in this earth, even those things that we cannot explain, even those hard things. And I spoke of how this might speak into his son's situation. And I spoke of how this might speak into his own situation as his plans had fallen apart and he was starting all over. So this was our conversation. It was rich, very rich. And then an amazing thing happened. About halfway through our conversation, as he was trying to eat his Reuben sandwich and tell me his story, the tears began to flow. His eyes would just well up with tears. This confident, self-assured, successful businessman began to weep. And he began to pull out napkins and dab his eyes. And there became a big pile of wet napkins in front of him. And he kept saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, you, you have nothing to apologize for. I'm honored that you would share so deeply with me. And so it kept going and kept going. And finally at the end of it, with this big pile of wet napkins in front of him, I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And he said, no, I'd like that. So there in the restaurant, I prayed for my Hindu, Jesuit, (laughs) confused friend in the name of Jesus. And then we left and said, I hope we have another conversation. And he said, I would like that very much. It was so sweet to me. It was such a profound conversation. It was so moving because I was watching as this man of this world caught a glimpse of a personal and loving and powerful God as if he had never thought of it before. One who will never abandon you. Not only that, one who is for you. I think it shook him. I hope it shakes him some more. It ought to shake you. Do you know this God? This God I described? Do you know this God who is with you 
no matter what you're going through? Do you know this God who is for you? Not just sitting there, not in the room, but he is your greatest fan, your greatest champion. He is rooting you on in the power of his son and the spirit. Do you know this kind of God? This is the God that Paul teaches us about. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that good? Amen. (laughs) Let's pray. What a great God you are. What a great God you are. We love you. We praise you. We bless your holy name. Thank you that you did not withhold any of your goodness from us. Thank you that you who were willing to give up your own son... The rest of it is just piddly stuff. If you were willing to do that, you're willing to do every good thing for us, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are not only with us, but you are our champion. Lord, I pray for the person here who does not know you in that way. And if that is you, if that is you, I just want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever experienced God in this way? in the moving, transformative way that my friend, as he sat at that restaurant table trying to control his tears because he suddenly saw a picture of God that he had not known before. If you do not know this God, then you do not know his son Jesus. And his spirit is not living in you because if he is, and if you do, then you have this kind of God. Even now, even now, you can invite him into your life. If you pray this prayer with me, dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Thank you for not leaving me in my sin, but coming, chasing me down to redeem me. I receive the gift of Jesus. I'm sorry for my sin. I ask your Holy Spirit to fill me up and to change me and to make me one of your kids. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I don't care if you've been coming to church for 40 years. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you don't know the kind of God I just described to you, then you don't know God. And that prayer is the beginning of that real journey for you. I'm going to be back there. I'd love to talk with you. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, come and see me. And if you're new, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I have a gift for you. It's just an enticement for you to come back and talk to me. So... I'll be right back in the back, and we would love to have you come and make your acquaintance, okay?